Advent, week one. Good morning. Uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent in the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, I'm going to light a candle. I'm going to read you several passages of Scripture, because uh, we don't have time to read the whole Old Testament, which is really what we should be doing in Advent. But uh, and then I'm, I'm going to tell you what we're doing and offer, try to offer an explanation of why we do it. Uh, this is only the second year um, that we as a church have done like an Advent wreath, why these candles are up here. Um, even marking the four Sundays before Christmas isn't something we've done, we've done as a church here in Northrop for very long. So I'm going to spend some time today, probably too much time if I'm honest, explaining uh, why we even mark days on a calendar with traditions like this at all. But... Uh, if you lose interest during that part, if that's when nap time happens or something, remember this. Okay, This is the boiled down, simple version of what I'm talking about today. This is what you have to expect. The world is dark and Christ is the light. So, We pray to you, Jesus, the light of the world, and we come to you knowing our need for your illumination, knowing that we are poor, blind, hungry, and naked, and we come to you to meet uh, all of our needs and more. Uh, we come to you desiring your spirit, knowing that uh, spiritually th spiritual things must be spiritually discerned, that the eyes of our hearts must be illuminated. Uh, so we pray that this time, this short time that we have this Sunday um, would be spent well that your spirit would have access to every room in our hearts and that we would desire you more having come into your house today, to come to be with your family, to be with your church today. Let the result be an expectation, an anticipation that even then results in, in a preparation for your coming. We pray that you would be glorified, that you would be pleased with what is done today in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Advent. Week one. Okay, also, congratulations on finishing up some Old Testament books um, where we finished Ma Malachi and Haggai. Neither of those, you know, read the same as, say, like Ephesians or First John or something. And I know the Old Testament isn't easy for everyone, but it's okay because now it's Christmas time. It's Advent. Uh, we're going to look forward to baby Jesus in the manger. So you can turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter three, because I just couldn't get enough of it. I just, it's just too good. It's so good. You can, you could consider this week one of Advent or the postscript at the end of our series in the Old Testament prophets, okay? Because um, Malachi chapter three, verse one, and I'm going to read a whole bunch of verses from everywhere. So you can make your decision now, whether you're going to turn to these or just write them down or, or whatever, but I'm not waiting, okay? I'm not waiting for you. But Malachi three, verse one is the first one. It says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. That's an Advent verse right there. Okay, Malachi 4, verse 2. Told you, I couldn't get enough of Malachi. It was just too good. Malachi 4, verse 2. We read this just last week. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Uh, that verse is modified in two of the Christmas carols we sang this morning, actually. Um, 
I'll read some more. Zechariah 9, verse 9 says, Behold, your king is coming to you. We looked at that verse in the midweek Bible study this week. He's coming. Isaiah 9, verse 2. This one actually ends up on Christmas cards now and then, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. I'll give you a little bit of New Testament because you've been very good. John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And even to the church, those who have been illuminated, Paul writes, Ephesians 5, 14, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The world is dark, and we need the illumination of Christ. And, and people talk about our, our world. It's hard not to. It's where we live, okay? It's where we're all from. And, and we, we talk about it in its corruption as it's this kind of thing that's winding down, you know, to the end of the world, like it's two seconds to midnight. Wrong. We're past midnight, and we're looking forward to the sunrise. We have to get our priorities straight, I think. It's already dark, and we're hoping for the guaranteed dawn, the son of right, for those who fear him, the son of righteousness will arise. I'll give you one more New Testament verse two. First John three, verse three says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope that John is talking about in first John is that day when we shall see Jesus. As believers living between advents, between the first advent or the first coming of Christ and the second advent, the second coming of Christ, which hasn't happened yet, we're in, we're the in between, we are commanded to be hoping for that day, for that day where our hope is, where we'll become like him, for we're going to see him as he is. That's not a burdensome command. Uh, we're supposed to be the most hopeful people on earth, even as we are the ones who see how terrible the night really is. But we're promised, we shall see him as he is. And it says in 1 John, a, a change will take place in us. We're called children of God now, but children grow up. And when we see him, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be changed, corruptible, which we're very familiar with. We'll put on incorruptible, which we have no idea what that's like. In a way, Advent is our time now to remember these realities, and to look forward to those realities. We remember that Christ came. We remember that Christ is coming. We also remember that there was a time before Christ came where the people of God had this same hope that we have now, really, for the second coming of Christ, but they had it for the first coming. We enter into their experience, even as, as Job experienced, and you know, it can only be described as a dark night of the soul. He says, for I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Having this hope that our king is coming, that the sunrise is inevitable, that the dawning of the sun of righteousness will come and melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the dark of doubt away, that the Lord whom we seek will suddenly come. Having this hope, we purify ourselves. There's an introspection that is fitting. So right there, we actually have the answer to the what and the why of Advent. Like, why do we do Advent in December? What's this whole Christmas thing about? From a theological perspective, we have it. What are we doing? We're cultivating hope. We are anticipating the coming of Christ and taking our lives seriously in that interim, in that meanwhile. And we're entering into the experiences of 
the Old Testament saints who longed for Christ, who desired Christ, people who wanted the dawn so much more because they were aware of the darkness around them. Why do we do it? Because Jesus is coming back. We're still marking time saying, I hope for Jesus. Yes, he's, he's come. We're, we're after uh, the cross, the, the empty tomb. So we're, we're in a different era, a different uh, epoch, you might say, than the Old Testament saints. But we're still hoping for Christ. Jesus has promised to return. We study these things. We mark time on a calendar to consider life before Christ, even to consider life without Christ so that we can better appreciate, hope for, long for, rejoice in the coming of Christ. Um, so that's, that's a little bit more of an explanation. That still doesn't explain, like, candles and why do they have to be purple and why do we do this for four weeks in December. All, all, all that can seem a little bit extra, you know. And, and, and someone might say correctly that none of this Christmas stuff is even in the Bible. So what are we even doing? Not a bad question. I don't want to belittle the, that kind of question. That It comes from a place where we're just desiring to do things biblically. But before you go full Scrooge on Christmas, Mr. Grinch, it is important, it is important to consider that, that you know, the importance of the work God can do in the human soul during times like this and the need for hopeful hearts that take times like this seriously. As evangelical Protestants, which we are, we have a short and glorious tradition of disliking traditions, right? Like, and so we, we see some traditions and practices and say, well, I don't know about that. What does that have to do with the gospel at all? Let's just throw it out. G.K. Chesterton addresses this mentality the best, I think. Uh, he says this. He says, let us say, for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate put up across a road. Uh, was put up across the road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. Advent's offense. Okay, this has been set aside by Christians for about 1,700 years, give or take, in one form or another. It's an old fence. It has almost always had a dual focus. It is a time to focus on both the first coming and the second coming of Christ. The earliest evidences of churches using this time for special devotions and perhaps fasting and that kind of introspection that I was mentioning, it's from the 300s AD. That's a long time for a fence to be up. It's wise to think twice about removing something that's been so well established. Now, for better or for worse, it used to be that for the Christian, for the people of God, the entire calendar year was organized around Jesus not, not just Christmas and Easter, but other days that marked other events. And yeah, it got cluttered there for a little while, right? Saints Day, St. Saint Patrick and Valentine are the only ones that, you know, we kind of held on to in the, uh, in the modern era. And they've kind of lost their Christian essence for the most part. But mostly, the year was marked by attention to holiness and a focus on the life of Christ. You have Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter, Pentecost, Advent. Christmas is celebrated on the 25th. And if Christmas is on the 25th, then you know that the presentation in the temple of baby Jesus should be on the 2nd of February. Not because that's when it happened, but because we're creatures stuck in time and the best way to mark it is with things that happened to Jesus. Um, as Christians, we don't focus on Jesus just at Christmas, but all year round. The use of A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, shows 
the effect that God in Christ has had on time itself in our human understanding of history and our place in it, which is why, you know, the, there's the, the push to use CE and BCE instead of BC and AD, and I say no thanks to that, but that's a different sermon that probably shouldn't be preached in church. But So you have, you have time. You have time, for better or for worse, with the, the weeks. Uh, when the weeks are marked by Sunday, the months are marked by feasts, the years divided into categories that correspond to Christ, and every day the Christian is aware of moving forward towards their meeting with their Savior. Even the daily ritual of sleep and waking is a reminder for the believer of death and resurrection and of light conquering darkness. Advent begins the year, and we move in hopeful anticipation towards the return of Christ. Now, a simple question, not a trick question. Does the world we live in still mark time like this? No. The answer is no. Even, even on a week-by-week basis, there, it was, you know, recent history was... Uh, in recent history, time was marked for people in our civilization, our culture at least, by Sunday. You go to church on Sunday, and that's just kind of what you do for better or for worse. And, of course, anything like that can become a, a dry ritual for sure. But now we don't have that given on the calendar that, that your week is just marked with Sunday. Your, your, your week is marked by whatever your boss schedules you at work and even many Christians count Sunday as a kind of an optional every now and then kind of thing. It does not govern your concept of time. Sidebar. Can you imagine families treating Christmas like that? Just like, yeah, yeah, we do Christmas some years. We do Christmas sometime. Uh, every few years we'll do the Christmas thing, but sometimes we just play soccer instead because that's when we do it. Like, you, you can't imagine it because it's one of the last few fences we have. There's a lot of these fences, to use Chesterton's term, that have been taken down. When there's no fences, no markers, walking through an open field can be disorienting. So what do people do? They put up other fences to something to put their hand on. Now, I know you don't, guys don't usually get a whole lot of Frederick Nietzsche on Sunday mornings, but hey, it's Christmas, and you've been very good. So, hey, yeah, Nietzsche, or Nietzsche is the, the atheist philosopher famous for the statement, God is dead, right? That's how we remember that guy. You have to realize that that was a statement he put into the mouth of a character in a piece of fiction, and the character who says God is dead is a madman. Uh, context matters. And this is the full statement from this crazy guy that explains what happens when you remove God, when you kill God. He says, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to cleanse ourselves? And here's the important part for our purposes. What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? Sinful man has indeed done his best to kill God. The crucifixion attests to this. And we acknowledge that it wasn't, you know, the Romans. It wasn't the Pharisees. It was mankind. It's, it's us. It was my sin that held him there. This is a dark world indeed. We are the murderers of all murderers. And in a less bloody, more palatable sense, the world which is under the sway of the wicked one in which we live will seek to remove any mention or notice of God, the God who loves you, who died for your sins, whether that's as inane as changing A.D. to you know, C.E. or the more disgusting things you can see in our decaying world. There's an attempt to live in a world that pretends God is dead. 
The world is still killing God. But if we remove God, not just all the fences, but the one who they've been put up in honor of, how do we cope? What, how, how does the, a, a culture that has removed God deal with their crime and the barren landscape that's left once you remove meaning? Well, they invent festivals and sacred games and become God simply to appear worthy. That's what Nietzsche's madman said would happen. We have new holidays. Why do you think we have Pride Month? Earth Day. Or take it down to something less obvious. Labor Day. That's a fake holiday. A holiday. Holiday means holy day, which these are certainly not. These are fences the world has put up, and you might say they've had to because they've torn down all the others without any regard to their purpose, without asking why they were set up in the first place. Advent for the church is an old fence, and we need it not just because it's old, not just because tradition is good in its own right or something like that. We need Advent because we need hope, and we need disciplines of hope. Uh, it doesn't happen on its own. We need to practice hope. We need Advent because every December when the world is, is and we're reminded as the days get real short, you know, that the world is dark and Christ is the light. We need it in every age of the church because in order to hope for light, we need to know the weight of darkness. And having felt the weight of darkness, we need to cultivate this hope that only exists with the dawning of Christ. We need Advent now in 2023 because we live in a world inhabited by the murderers of God who would make themselves gods to seem worthy of the task. And these are sins worth addressing in ourselves and, and worthy of mourning for. Wow, Merry Christmas. Gosh, what kind of Christmas message is this guy preaching, right? We started Malachi, we got Nietzsche, and a whole bunch about fences, and he doesn't like Labor Day for some reason. Like, and now I have to feel sad about sin. Merry Christmas. That's right. I'm, I'm really glad we're on the same page. We mark time. We're creatures of time. We don't, we don't have to, uh, of course. Some esteem every day alike. Others don't. That's fine. But what we do with this time, these chronological fences, is we practice disciplines of hope. And the people of God are a hopeful people. That's the family you belong to. All the way from, all the way from Adam, we've been a hopeful people, leaning forward, hoping for the resolution of the tension that we feel. Um, but that's not really the whole picture, to say that we're hopeful. It would be more accurate to say that the people of God throughout history are a grieving, hopeful people. That's our thing. Advent is a grieving, hopeful time. Why grieving? Because it is a memorial of a time without Christ, of, of a time before Christ, when we are most keenly aware of our need. You know how you, you, know how you never really know what you need until you need it and don't have it? <laughs> Advent is kind of like that. It is our entry point into the experience of the Old Covenant saints. It's not where we live under the rules of the Old Covenant or something like that, but we do mourn with them who have mourned and prayed, How long, O Lord? That's a prayer of Scripture. We remember life without Christ. We look at the experiences of the, the hopeful, whether it's Old Testament saints, Old Testament prophets, or people like Zechariah and Elizabeth and Luke 1, or Mary or Joseph or the kings or any of the characters in the Nativity. And we look with clear eyes at their deep need for Jesus and recognize that our needs are the same. We consider those who are in darkness, who have seen a great light, Isaiah 9-2, and realize that our sinful hearts are likewise darkened unless the sun of righteousness shines on us. As such, Advent becomes a celebration tinged with grief. It's both celebration and lament. It is a memorial that is more like Lent than it is like Easter. In fact, traditionally, Advent is considered a Lenten season. That means it's more for fasting than it is for feasting. The 12 days of Christmas, when all the parties happen, that's 
technically starts with Christmas and goes into January. So if you need to extend Christmas party until January, you just got permission from your pastor, just like that. But if we look at some of the traditions around Advent, they may be a bit foreign to some of us, but we'll pick up clues about the kind of attitude that is supposed to be struck. We don't think about these things very often, but even, even colors can mean things. We've got these three purple candles and a pink one. That's weird because they're not red and green, and those are, you know. So, uh, you know, why well, purple? We might think of royalty, right? We've always been told that, you know, kings were purple. It's really expensive. And certainly with the presence of purple in our vision, we think of Zechariah 9.9, behold, your king is coming to you. But in the history of the church, the color purple has served dual purposes. Yeah, it's to remind you of a king and you're not him, but it's to remind you of suffering. Bruises are purple. The only time Jesus wore purple was during the Passion, when they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. His royalty is seen in his suffering. It's the only time he wore a crown, too. For the Christian, royalty means Jesus, and Jesus is given to us as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Purple reminds us of our suffering king. There's even some symbolism here that we catch from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 4, there's rules given for transporting the tabernacle. And, and, you know, you've got the tabernacle where God would meet with his people in this tent that is built exacting specifications. And within it, you have the holy place. And then behind a veil, you have the holy of holies. That's where the ark is. And when you pack it up, you've, you've got to wrap each piece of furniture in a specific way with a specific piece of cloth. And all the furniture within the tabernacle, all the gold furniture, it's wrapped in blue. The only piece in the whole tabernacle that is covered with purple is the altar where the lamb would be slain. Yeah, purple suggests royalty, but I'm not the king and neither are you. It reminds us that our suffering savior is a king who paid a great price. Seeing the darkness that our savior came to, we hope even more for the dawning of the son of righteousness. And in longing for Jesus, hoping for Jesus, clinging to the promises of Jesus, we purify ourselves knowing that he is pure. I told you the one thing worth remembering. If you've got everything else, it's, it's this. It's that the world is dark, but Christ is the light. If you can handle another truth worth remembering, let it be this one. Anticipation should prompt preparation, or anticipation should equal preparation. Remember, those who have this hope purify themselves. There's, there's a to-do list. There's something for us to do. The virgins who expect the wedding feast keep their lamps trimmed and full of oil. And this is really how the passage in Malachi gets to the heart of things. Malachi says to the people, the Lord is coming. And again, this hope, the hope we cultivate during Advent, is a hope where we settle into this place of recognizing what the need is, what the lack is that Christ came to provide for. And one of those verses that shows up a lot around Christmas, which we've already read twice or referenced twice, is Isaiah 9 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So we remember that without Christ, the world is in the dark. Without Christ, we are in the dark. Uh, in fact, you could even say, without Christ, we are darkness. That's the language Paul uses. And we've seen in our study in Malachi, apart from God's relentless pursuit of his children, even the kids are in the dark. When Malachi says, the Lord is coming, he's saying, the dawn is coming. When Zechariah says, what, what Zechariah calls the day spring from on high, and in Luke 1, 78, it's translated simply as sunrise in some translations. 
is coming. That's the way Malachi talks about it in Malachi 4.2, which we read this morning and last week. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. The sun will rise. Christmas is the sunrise. After a long, dark night for humanity, the sun rises. There's hope for humanity. That's the hope of, of Malachi and really all the prophets. But you'll remember that the message that Jesus is coming sounds different to different kinds of people, doesn't it? The, the proud have been rebuked. Those neglecting their work have been warned. John tells us that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Well, for that kind of person, the sunrise isn't good news, is it? For such as these, the promise of the sunrise is another kind of rebuke. It's a call to examine disordered loves and a call to repent of disordered deeds. And the entire, the entire Old Testament scriptures, it's oriented towards this hope and this warning, both. And when you get to the New Testament, it becomes crystal clear that Jesus has come to fulfill the hopes and fears of all the years, as we sing in the Christmas carol. Consider how each one of the Gospels begins, okay? So even though only two of the Gospels get the Christmas story, right, with the manger and the shepherds and the wise men and stuff like that, you have Matthew and Luke. But all four accounts contain what you could call the attitude of Advent, this expectation, this hopefulness, and this awareness of our deep need. Not one of the Gospels begins with the nativity scene, by the way. Matthew doesn't begin with a baby in a manger. It begins with a genealogy that goes back to Abraham. The New Testament, where all the hope you know, is fulfilled, it, it starts with the begats, as if to say, we've been waiting for this for 42 generations. We've been on the edge of our seats, and this whole time God was working, God was preparing, and his people were hoping. The night has been long. The Gospel of Mark, which doesn't record any details about the birth of Jesus or anything like that, it still begins with anticipation. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he quotes from Isaiah 40, a prophecy written four, or sorry, 700 years before anticipating Christ. And then he talks about John the Baptist, who says in Mark chapter 1, 7, there, is one after me who is, there comes one after me who is mightier than I. The story begins with someone saying, he's coming. This is the attitude of Advent. Really, it's the attitude of the gospels. The gospel of Luke gives the, the Christmas story, right? It's, it records, uh, you know, in most detail, the birth of Christ. But it also records with the most poetic detail and thoroughness uh, the attitude of the anticipation. Instead of Mary and Joseph, the first people you meet in Luke are Zechariah and Elizabeth, who had been waiting for a child for years and years and years. Also, Luke chapter 1 is 80 verses long. That is the longest chapter in the New Testament. So you have to go through all that before Jesus is born in Luke 2. Luke knows all about building anticipation. That's the attitude of Advent. And then you have John. And while Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe or allude to the expectation of Christ's arrival from a human perspective, John starts from heaven. He goes back even further. He frames his story in the time frame of eternity. Instead of going back 700 years like uh, you know, to Isaiah like Mark did, or, or back 42 generations like Matthew, John goes back to the beginning. He echoes Genesis. The coming of Christ into the world was anticipated from before the foundation of the world. God anticipated Advent, the first Advent, the coming of Christ into the world, before anyone else existed. He has been looking forward to his meeting with humanity and the union even that he can have with humanity the, he's been looking forward to his arrival, the incarnation, even before he created a place he was going to arrive in. We should 
we should love to consider the desires of God. They are stronger than us. You know, we say, oh, I want Jesus to show up. And God says, yeah, I want that too, more than you do. And I've wanted it longer than you have. We say, I want God to be glorified. God would say, I, I want that too, more than you do. And I've wanted it for longer. We say, I want Jesus, the light of the world, to shine into the darkness because look how dark it is. And God says, I've been wanting that since before darkness existed. I've been anticipating this. And this is still his heart. God desires to shine his light into our dark world. And the one who has said, I am the light of the world, is still intent on illuminating this world's darkness. God himself wanted the story about the baby in the manger far more than Mary or Joseph, Elizabeth or Zechariah, far more than Isaiah or Abraham. The attitude of Advent begins with God. He is the one who anticipates, in a way, his own plans, knowing when the day would come to unfold history and show what it is he has been planning. And what he's been planning is told us in John chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. Christ has come, and Christ is coming. And he has, he has come and waged war against evil, against sin, against death itself. And now we're caught in the in-between where defeated death still shows its head, and sin is still something we fight against. But the attitude we have in this in-between, well, we're, we're told in Luke 21, 28, lift up your heads for our redemption draws nigh. We're not looking forward to midnight. We're looking forward to the sunrise. We're told to watch. Over and over and over and over we're told to watch, to be watchful. We're told to hope. We have the entire Old Testament as our model for how to long for and hope for all the prophets waiting and watching for the coming of Christ. And now as we're in this already but not yet kingdom of God, we follow their example and we cultivate hope. Yes, so we can better celebrate the coming of Jesus born of Mary laid in a manger, but also so we can hope for his second coming because he's, he's coming again. Hebrews 9, 28, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. And as we're reminded by these simple traditions and practices of Advent, we're reminded that the world is dark, that Christ is the light. And as we realize now, not by accident, as we come to the shortest days of the year, that the shadows still deepen. We hold fast the hope of a coming day when there shall be no night, nor need for lamp, nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. Revelation 22.5. We look forward to a city whose builder and maker is God, a city that has no need for, of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. Revelation 21.23. If there are fences that I can put my hand on that will guide me on a road to more hope, more anticipation, more confidence in the coming of Christ and in his final victory over all evil, I want those fences. I want them. I want the guardrails that I can put my hand on that will guide me toward the end of that road. And as we as a church develop the anticipation of Christ's coming, I have confidence that his spirit will also lead us in active preparation for his coming. Uh, this season is meant to include a serious self-examination. Let every heart prepare him room, we sing, right? There's still darkness in our hearts that the light of the world is willing and able to combat. The examination will also include a look at our 
our dedication to, to mission, the Old Testament prophets that we've been studying contain the prophecy, the Lord is coming, partly in order to remind God's people to get to work building his house. We're still building him a house, aren't we? Or to use a different uh, sort of language, we are preparing him a bride. The promise that those in darkness will see a great light is a promise that the gospel will go to the nations. We have a role in global evangelism, and Advent is a time to frame our thoughts around that reality. We have to be reminded of this. Brian will talk more about that next week. In the meantime, I would encourage you to use, to plan on using the next four weeks leading up to Christmas. Don't let this time be wasted. Set aside time to seek the Lord. In seeking him, ask him to give your hearts the proper longing, the desires that he has for, that he has for the coming of Christ and the writing of all wrongs. Ask to be able to share in the heart of God and love the things that he loves and hate the things that he hates and want the things that he wants with all the confidence that God himself has. Ask him to cultivate hope in your heart and ask him to let you share in the church's long longing for Christ. I think this is going to happen for you. Uh, This week and hopefully for the rest of this month, at least the four weeks leading up to Christmas, you will entrust your hearts to the Lord's gentle care and let him shape your heart into a hopeful, grieving heart and allow him to cultivate in you a desire to see his face when you will be changed, when he will lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray. Jesus, this is our hope, and we believe it is your hope as well. We know that you, Jesus, the lover of our souls, desire a meeting with each one of us and with with us collectively as your church. And we pray, let every heart prepare you room. Let this, this Advent season have its full effect. Uh, let this month re- have the result of us wanting Jesus more, knowing Jesus more, loving Jesus more, longing for the return of Jesus even more. Father, we commit these things into your hands. Amen. 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 Please stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.